This is Oklahoma football. All right, we are back, back for another Thursday edition of the Mainline Podcast on this jam-packed week in the world of sports. I'm your host, Tyler Burton, and the gang is all here tonight. Adam Jacquez, Corbin Polson. Guys, the group chat has been a little quiet this past couple of days, so how are we doing? How's the week going, Adam? Start with you, man. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind week for me. I am back in Oklahoma. I uh, love being back uh, in the state uh, of Sooners, but uh, a little bit uh, saddened, uh, I guess just emotionally up and down for how this basketball team is treating me right now. Yeah, that's been rough. Um, I know we'll get into that here in a little bit, but yeah, Colorado's doing great out here. We're supposed to get a couple of feet of snow over the weekend, so uh, we'll be bundled up tight just watching a, a ton of basketball and doing some cooking, and that's pretty much going to be about it. Well, I've been I've been kind of pestering Adam over the last couple of months, trying to get him back to Nor- or back to Oklahoma. So now that that's finally uh, underway, Corbin, what's the uh, what's the ETA as far as you making your return to the four hundred five or what is it five eight two? I guess there's two different area codes now, uh, depending yeah. on what what side of the Oklahoma City you're in. So how it's how much longer? Somewhere around the never going to happen range. Um, that's kind of what I'm thinking to get back to Oklahoma. So I'll come back for some games and everything, but guys, life's too good out here. Yeah, I give it 18 months. You'll be a Colorado Buffaloes fan um, out there in Boulder. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll t- talk on that. Well, it, it's been kind of crazy around here. Work's been work's been crazy busy this week. So uh, between that, going to the gym every day, I know I'm kind of late to the party on this, guys. But after hearing a ton of friends and family uh, talk about it, I finally started watching Yellowstone this week. Um, I've got two Samsung smart TVs that I was hoping I could you know, download the Peacock app, stream through it that way. Found out that my TVs are not compatible with Peacock quite yet, so I've been at Best Buy buying a Roku stick, getting everything signed up for that, and I have been up since midnight the last three nights watching this damn show. I can't turn it off, starting season two after we kind of wrap this up a little bit, but uh, uh, have either of you guys watched it, or uh, it's pretty dang good? It's on my list, so I'll be right behind you. I'm through all three seasons. Just wait until the end of season three. So we got season four coming up this summer, right? June or July? So. Okay. Who knows all the COVID stuff, but I know they're filming. They're doing, they're doing a prequel. So there's another show coming along with it that is like before the time it's in now. It's like of the family originally getting to claim that land. Where so they're at right now. Oh, sweet. So I got we got a lot to look forward to. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, we've got a really good show tonight, a lot of good content to kind of dive into. We'll just start right here with uh, what's kind of going on with OU Athletics here in Norman. First and foremost, Joe C. making the big announcement a few days ago about we are going to have full capacity for the 2021 football season. I know that that was kind of music to to my ears and hopefully you guys as well. The uh, The fact that we're going to have, um, again, it could change, but from the looks of it, we're going to have 85, 86,000 fa- screaming fans uh, inside Gaylord Family Oklahoma Memorial Stadium here. Uh, I know that it is going to be Western Carolina for for the home opener, but I you got to think that uh, it, it should be a pretty good environment now that we're going to have a full stadium. Everybody's going to be back uh, cheering on the Sooners this year. I think it's going to be really exciting just to see that reaction. You know, when the team comes running out of the tunnel for the first time, and I think people will have a lot of just pent up, you know, uh, you know, wanting to get out over the last year, and we want to put all that behind us. So. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a huge advantage for us this year. I'm hoping that it helps us really have much more of a home field advantage than we've had in the last five, six years or so. And and we see some pretty loud crowds throughout this upcoming season. 
I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this. You know, Joe C saying that they're hopeful everything looks good right now to have a full stadium, everything be a full go once we get uh, closer to football season in early September. But from a fan perspective, and we all know, like with the COVID vaccine and all that stuff going on right now, what kind of either protocols is it going to be where you're going to have to be vaccinated to get into the stadium? Are you going to have to show proof? What's it going to be like for the teams? Is the NCAA you know, to be as, you know, precautious as possible? Are they going to make the players and the coaches be required to get it? I don't know if you can legally do that, um, but that was just kind of something that I was kind of thinking about now that we are trending towards, you know, a little bit of normalcy heading into this football season. Yeah, I mean, your guess is as good as mine on that one. Um, I don't know how you force someone to get the vaccine. I've more thought of it from from a coach's and, and player perspective. If the vaccine's available, but a player doesn't want to take it, and then they test positive for COVID. Like, what do you do there? Can they go get yeah. the vaccine and they're fine? Like, I, I don't know how all that's going to play out, but I don't think you can force anybody to take the vaccine. Um, and I don't know how you, I don't know how you mandate, you know, 84, 85,000 people checking them all at the gate for vaccination records. I, I don't know if you can do that either. I don't know if that's legal. So yeah. um, there's a lot to figure out, but I would imagine it's as long as there's plenty of vaccines to go around, like, I don't think that falls on the school anymore as far as protecting people. If they want to come to the game, they're going to come to the game. Yeah, it already kind of takes forever to get through the gate into the stadium. So imagine adding like a, uh, a COVID, uh, you know, checkpoint, you know, show us your card, show us whatever, you know, wh- whatever symbol it is that they're, they're going to require you or maybe even not require you to, to show to show that you are vaccinated. So, uh, but, but yeah, it, really excited about that full capacity is what it looks like for uh, week one for, for OU football and, uh, guys, spring practice starts up here in just a couple weeks, beginning on March 22nd, ultimately leading to the spring game that's going to be taking place on Saturday, April 24th. And guys, we've got Pro Day here in Norman tomorrow. So what are you guys kind of looking forward to seeing the most out of? Is it a Creed Humphrey? What's he going to do on the bench press? Is it the Trey Brown 40 time? What's Ronnie Perkins going to look like? You know, we, we've heard rumors about how he's putting on size. The NFL guys have been talking about how you've got to put weight on, got a little, got to be a little bit bigger going into the next level. So what are some of the things that you guys are kind of excited to, to see on social media and, and on zoom tomorrow uh, with OU pro day? For me, it's got to be both what Creed Humphrey and Ronnie Perkins are able to accomplish. And so anytime that OU can have a guy that's going to get drafted in the first round, that's a huge marketing opportunity for the program. And so those guys are really, you know, fringe guys that are more likely to be in the second round, in my opinion. But I'm interested to see if either one of them can do anything that can really wow and and really shoot them up the draft boards. Yeah, um, I'll be honest, guys. I love OU football. My head's in March Madness. I don't know how much weight I'm going to put in this pro day tomorrow. Um, but, you know, I think a couple guys, I think Adam hit it right on the head. I think Ronnie Perkins, I think that's important. Um, I almost wonder if this pro day could do him more harm than good because he's got such good film of last year, even though it was limited in action. I wonder what else he can prove outside of putting on size that will actually be beneficial for his draft ranking. Um, and so I, I, you wonder how much he's actually going to – to put things together live in pro day. Um, so I wonder that. And then, yeah, then, you know, for me, it's, it's Trey Brown speed equals money. And so if he can go out there and put up a good 40 time and show his athleticism the way we all know he, he can, I think that'll uh, help his draft ranking uh, quite a bit. 
I definitely, you know, we've been talking about it for a couple of years. You know, we, we all wanted to know what Kyler's 40 time was going to be. What was Hollywood Brown's going to be? And then Trey Brown was kind of the next in line as far as, you know, we, we all know he was the fast guy on the team. What's he going to do, you know, wh- whenever it comes time for like a combine or a pro day scenario where, you know, he's got the stopwatch and the laser setting a timing mask. So seeing what Trey's going to do, can he crack the four, three timing? Um, like you said, that, that uh, automatically shoots you off the draft boards. If you're, you know, kind of in that elite level where you're in a sub four, four, you know, four, three, eight type thing. And Ronnie Perkins, for me, we all know he's got the film to back it up. That Bedlam film, honestly, is probably some of the best uh, edge guy defensive lineman play that I've seen in an OU uniform in quite some time. But, you know, kind of what you guys were talking about, we had Kenneth Murray become the first defensive draft uh, drafted player in quite some time last year. Now, depending on what Ronnie He's got the film. What can he do tomorrow in terms of testing? And he's all about the measurements. Can he put together a solid performance tomorrow that can kind of solidify him as, you know, making an NFL franchise be able to say, hey, this guy's too good of a talent. We can't let him get out of round one. Can he become OU's second consecutive defensive player drafted in the first round? Just to kind of, you know, highlight once again what Alex Grinch is doing on the defensive side of the football since he stepped foot uh, on campus here in Norman and some of the changes that's been made. And kind of last last but not least for me is what what can a guy like Trey Norwood do with this opportunity? You know, whenever he was whenever he first made the the decision, he declared for the NFL draft. I think a lot of OU fans were like, "What? Okay." Um, kind of surprised by that. Not sure what he's going to be able to do as far as is he going to get drafted? Will he be? kind of a, uh, a free agent that'll have a chance to, to make a team or practice squad. So I think tomorrow is a huge uh, is a huge uh, opportunity for him to kind of impress the scouts. We all know that, you know, every NFL team is going to be here in Norman. So hopefully he can make the most of the opportunity tomorrow and, you know, put himself in good position uh, going in the, into the NFL draft here in just a few weeks. So, uh, but Adam, to kind of transition over here, we'll touch on softball here in a second, but what's kind of going on with OU baseball right now? Baseball is up to a 500 record. Uh, we are we six and six right now. It's been quite the rocky start, um, giving up a ton of runs in the first inning uh, over the last several games. And there was uh, some, I guess, contention with uh, the most recent series that happened down in Frisco. People thought the mound was a little bit too low, and that caused quite a few runs to be scored. Um, but not the best outing there uh, for OU that weekend. But uh, we did rebound uh, and beat UT Arlington on Tuesday night. Uh, just looking at some of the stats, we're we're coming up close to the same amount of games played in 2021 that was played in the 2020 season that was shortened. Uh, and so, um, obviously, we lost a lot of pitching uh, from that particular team. The batting average for opposing batters has gone from 218 up to 257 so far this year. Kind of expect that a little bit there, but... Uh, it's the hitting that's been a little bit more surprising for me. Not nearly as many home runs, uh, not nearly as many hits. So we'll see if that can round into shape and uh, and start some Big 12 play here in a couple of weeks really strong. You know, it, it's kind of funny. We haven't had a chance, you know, to watch this baseball team on, on live television yet. But seeing all over social media, you know, not just with the OU baseball account, but it really kind of took off and went viral. The home run that was hit just a couple nights ago, that was probably – one of the most hard-hit home run balls that I've seen in college baseball in quite some time. So that's that's good for the program. A lot of eyes on that. 
Um, and we'll see what Skip Johnson's crew can do as, you know, we get into conference play and see if we can put together a pretty good year. But, you know, guys, it seems like we talk about it every single week. Is It's, you know, this this OU softball team, number, ranked number one in the country. They, you know, they rolled to another run rule win last night over UT Arlington, 14 nothing in five innings. You know, Tiara Jennings and Jocelyn Allo both hit two home runs um, in, in last night's game. Those two girls are numbers one and two in the country. Uh, in college softball as far as home runs are hit. And, guys, it's just incredible. I mean, Patty Gasso's team, they're now 18-0, and and they're just kicking the crap out of all these teams so far this year. I mean, this, this team, they, they played 18 games. They've hit 66 home runs. And, you know, as of now, we'll see what happens with the weather. We've got some rain coming into the Oklahoma area over the – uh, over the course of tomorrow afternoon. But they've got two games scheduled tomorrow uh, down in Oklahoma City at one of Corbin's favorite places, Hall of Fame Stadium. So um, hopefully, you know, might get a chance to go down there this weekend, check out some of the renovations and a lot of the really good work that they put in to, you know, kind of make that Women's College World Series experience even better. But, uh, guys, last but not least, you know, kind of an old face uh, and, and kind of a legend here in coaching in, in Oklahoma, and that's Bob Stoops. Uh, kind of a big announcement earlier this week. He is going to be taking Urban Meyer's place uh, on Fox Sports' big noon kickoff as one of their lead analysts. So uh, it's it's got to be pretty good. Like it, it's only got to be a positive now that uh, the the Big Twelve and OU is going to have another advocate for them uh, on national television with all those Pac-12 guys and Big Ten guys, I guess also. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Coach Stoops. Um is able to relate with with the common man, right? Like, I think that's one thing Urban did really well and in, in a lot of his stuff with Fox was, like, breaking down the game in a way that a casual fan can understand it in a lot of the ways he did it. Um, and as much as I think Urban Meyer is an absolute scumbag of a human, that was that was one of his best traits, right, was his, his ability to break it down into a way that, like, everybody could understand. And so I'll be curious to see how Coach Stoops fits in that role. Um, he, as far as my knowledge goes, Outside of, you know, sideline interviews, he's never been in a role like this. So I'm curious to kind of see where he finds his footing. I'm sure it'll take a couple of weeks to kind of get in the groove of things. But talk about a guy with a ton of knowledge and obviously the background uh, in Norman that we all love. It, yeah, I think you're spot on, Tyler. It, it can't be a bad thing. And I look at Bob Stoops and I just from reading his book, uh, you know, I think he's very surprised when people treat him like a celebrity. So I think he really is just like anybody else out there. But again, it is the ability to articulate that through the television to uh, to all the viewers. And so I'm pretty pumped. I'm not a guy that really tuned into college game day much. Um, didn't really care for all the sap stories and things that were going on. Uh, I might tune in for the last five minutes to see the picks. But um, now I feel like I have something really to tune in on, on, on Saturday mornings for Fox's big noon kickoff show. Uh, and again, it, it is such a big advocate for the Big 12 because after Joel Klatt, I don't know who the next biggest advocate for the Big 12 conference was in the national media. Uh, it might have been Kirk Herbstreit, who's pretty fair to everybody. It's going to it's gonna be fun to kind of see how he goes about interacting with some of his, you know, co-hosts on that set. Guys like Brady Quinn, Matt Leinert, Reggie Bush, all guys that, you know, Coach Stoops was, you know, in, in the prime of his coaching career playing, you know, coaching against guys like that. So it'll be fun to see what he's able to bring to, to that crew, what he does in the film breakdown. That's, in my opinion, that's one of the things that, you know, I enjoyed so much about watching Urban Meyer was how he was able to break down the, the X's and O's and, you know, kind of, you know, dumb it down, I guess, in a, in a sense to, you know, the average college football fan to kind of explain what teams are doing on both sides of the football. So extremely happy for Coach Stoops. Um, and again, we talk about how good this OU football team could be in 2021. 
having him on the uh, on the crew for for Fox, you know, OU is you know we're we're you know famous for having that eleven o'clock you know noon kickoff. So maybe having a chance to get Coach Stoops and those guys down in Norman a couple times this year on set that'll be good for OU's you know OU's brand, getting them out there in front of the uh, you know the the nation on on TV. So excited for Coach Stoops and we'll uh, definitely be following him as he begins his uh, his TV and media career. So, well, guys, one more thing here before we talk some basketball. There's been a lot of news over the last probably seven to ten days about things going on with the football program up in Lawrence, Kansas. And Les Miles, uh, as of, what, less than 48 hours ago, he is out as the head coach of Kansas. They've come to a mutual agreement to kind of part ways, and all this stems from a report that, that came out, a report from – 2013 that came out last week where Les was attempting to, I guess, sexualize female student workers in the football program. He invited them to his condo. And according to the report, you know, he tried to kiss, you know, one of them on two separate occasions. So a lot of, you know, pretty, you know, pretty disgusting, pretty, you know, dirty stuff coming out about a, about, you know, a, a, you know, you know, well-renowned college football coach, you know, that's been in the limelight for the last two to three decades. So just guys, kind of, what are your thoughts on what, uh, you know, what happened to Les Miles exiting uh, out of his role up there in Lawrence? What a total creep. I mean, I'm surprised we don't hear about this type of stuff happening more often, especially from the SEC where, you know, one or two guys like a college coach or an athletic director have so much power uh, in an institution and, they basically get, you know, fed everything that they want. They have all the resources. They have everybody, um, you know, shoving money at the programs and things like that. And so when that power goes unchecked, it can really corrupt a lot of people. And so um, what a creepy guy. But I, I feel like Kansas is in some ways getting bailed out. Yes, they're they're paying quite a bit of money for the buyout to get rid of less miles. But he was absolutely not taking that program anywhere. And so maybe it'll work out better for Kansas in the long run that they're able to get someone in sooner rather than later. But man, what a, again, what a creep. I always thought Les was weird guys, but I didn't, I didn't think he was a pervert. Um, So this was a little surprising to me, to be honest. Um, (laughs) I think the two things that maybe alarm me most outside of, of course, like his actions is one, I think there's been on record now that I believe two separate occasions that the AD at LSU went to leadership, including the president of the university, trying to get Les Miles removed from that role, and he was turned down twice. I mean, that is absolutely mind-blowing. And Adam, as you mentioned a second ago, not only is he fired at KU, he's walking away with almost $2 million. I, I cannot wrap my head around how you get fired for doing something like this, and you walk away with any money whatsoever. And I know that they worked on the the contract buyout and everything but like that is for as as far as i think we've come in society in a lot of ways i don't know how to wrap my head around that one i mean that is one of the most bizarre things that a guy could get fired for that and still walk away with crazy money i I just can't can't remember here's here's my biggest thing this report was done three years prior to him being fired at lsu and he got fired by lsu not because you know he was sexually harassing female workers inside the athletic department, but he was fired because they weren't winning football games. And guys, this is a pattern that we've seen with LSU. You know the less less miles scandal that's finally come to light, the children's hospital situation with the with the donor, LSU ignoring you know sexual assault accusations a couple years ago, the Darius Juice stuff. I mean, how much more shit is LSU going to be able to get away with? I mean, 
You know, wh- what's the NCAA doing about this? Are they just kind of turning a blind eye at it because they are the SEC? They have a huge fan base. They bring a lot of money into college football. But I mean, it, it, it's just shocking to me that we're seeing time and time again these programs that get in trouble. You know, whether whether it is like a Baylor or you know the allegations that are happening at Tennessee or now what we're seeing at LSU, it just kind of seems like these programs just skate by with a you know simple slap on the wrist by the NCAA. Well, ask Kansas basketball what the penalty is for being a, a very scummy type of program. Yeah, who's happier than Bill Self right now? I guess. I don't. I don't mind. I don't mind the NCAA not encroaching when it comes to morality. What I do mind is the inconsistency, where they will encroach and, and won't encroach, and that's my issue with it because I think Baylor's a perfect example. We are what four or five years away, or excuse me, removed from that whole situation with our Bryles and the NCAA still has not issued a ruling on any punishment whatsoever. To my knowledge, at least as of a year ago, there had nothing been came out and I heard COVID was kind of pushing everything back. And then you look at a situation like Penn state where they Penn state just got hammered by the NCAA and, and rightfully so I have no issue with that whatsoever, but talk about like just the lack of consistency between scenario to scenario. If, if the NCAA wants to get into the, the moral laws that are outside of what just, you know, college athletics has a whole, then be in it. And if you don't, then don't and leave it up to the courts, whether that's state or Supreme, leave it to them. But you kind of have to, you kind of have to pick a side here because you're just, you're going back and forth and it leaves conversation just like we're having now with like, where does the NCAA actually fit in all of this? Because I don't think they know. Well, and this isn't, this isn't me just being pissed off because it's LSU or, you know, it's a, it's one of the best programs in the SEC. If this was my team and one of my team's coaches was doing stuff like this, especially something as serious and inappropriate as, you know, sexually harassing students, get rid of them immediately. There's no place for it. LSU should be embarrassed. And it's a good thing Les Miles has a ton of money, you know, sitting in the bank right now because, in my opinion, he should never have anything to do with call, with coaching football ever again because of the stuff that's come out. And like I said, this was known about eight years ago, and it's and it's kind of kind of interesting, you know. Why, why is it now on March of 2021? Why is it kind of coming to the light finally, and not something that should have been released? What four, five, six, seven years ago? I mean, hell, he should he should have been fired. The athletic director should have got his wish and should have fired him on the spot after that news was made public to him uh, back in 2013. Yeah, I would say if the concern back then was, oh, we don't want to pay Les Miles' potential buyout, well, that's not a good excuse. You need to go ahead and cut ties, take the high road. You know, you don't necessarily have to broadcast why you fired him. Um, maybe you know, keep that behind closed doors with some of your your bigger donors and and let them decide. Hey, do you want to fund this? We did the right thing. Uh, you know, morally, uh, you know, help us out here or just wait a year because you're in the SEC and you're making so much money every year from the TV contracts, you'll have the money to be able to pay that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, guys. We've seen this over the past decade. A story comes out like this. People start coming out and vocalizing what happens, whether it's at LSU or whether it's at other programs. What's what's next? Because I don't think this is going to just stop at LSU. I guarantee Les Miles isn't the only head coach in college football over the past 20 years that has hit on a college student or a a female student worker. Um, So does this empower other individuals to step up? Obviously always help hope that they are speaking truthful and there's, you know, that's always the goal there, but, but where else may this pop up where this kind of has a domino effect across college athletics? I'm curious if that happens because 
like I said, we've seen that in a lot of situations of people in the limelight, one person gets exposed and all of a sudden there's a little bit more empowerment for females to speak out, not even females, males to speak out and say, hey, this is what I saw. I'm curious to see if there's any other stories that follow this one. Well, it, it, it's always it's always tough to be the first one to, to be the first one that speaks out about something like this, you know, kind of brings all this stuff to the light. National media picks it up and runs with it. Social media, we all know how powerful that is. Um, but one thing that I'll be interested to see and as far as what this could do across the country, if there are other cases like this where this has happened in other programs, you know, not just in football, but, you know, across entire athletic departments in general. One thing that I think that could kind of play a factor as far as maybe like keeping stuff quiet or keeping stuff, you know, under wraps is, you know, what what's the penalty going to be? You know, like like you said, Corbin, I mean, he, he he's getting paid two million dollars to step away after doing something as disgusting as something like this. So is there really any impact, negative impact towards the coach on something like this and in, you know, effect? Could that force somebody to maybe want to, you know, keep their mouth closed because this really isn't going to do anything other than, you know, he's going to get fired. He might get bought out, but this probably really isn't going to do anything other than exposing a sick individual for what he truly is. I wish there was something in, in contracts. I know all of them have somewhat of a morality clause in them. They have to, but that's such a great area. My morality could be different from your morality versus one of our, our listeners morality. So that is what I'd like to see is probably a little more in depth of like specific scenarios within a contract to say, if you do this, if you cross this, if you cross this, you're walking with nothing, nothing well, at all. Perfect situation, you know, rewind back to what was it? Three, four years ago, the same football program, Kansas, David Beatty, you know, they kind of forced him out. They found these recruiting violations to basically find cause to, to be able to fire him. There was no buyout. He was not paid. He was shown the door. And now, I mean, it's it's kind of night and day. This is something that's so much worse because you've got sexual harassment involved, and yet he's going to walk away with $2 million. So I, I, I don't know what the NCAA is going to do. Like I said, I, I don't know how much the Kansas athletic director, when kind of going through this coaching hire, looking into Les Miles, I don't know if LSU was just simply hiding this because they knew that this was going to be a bad look on LSU if this did come out, and knowing that he was on staff for another three years after this, you know, terrible turn of events took place. Um, but again, if the NCAA is not going to do anything, just slap, just a slap on the wrist or honestly the worst, the punishment might just be the public knows about all this. So I, I don't know. It, it's going to be interesting to see if anything else happens because of this, but guys, one of the other things that we were kind of talking about this, uh, this situation, and it kind of got answered for us a couple hours ago was, you know, what, what's Kansas going to do from here? They don't have an athletic director. They didn't have a football coach. Who was who was you know going to be a realistic possibility for a, an athletic director to kind of go out and try to find a football coach to come in and ultimately try to do anything and everything possible to change the direction of this football program? It's an embarrassment. Honestly, I think they should do away with the program, get them out of the Big Twelve for football. I know that basketball is going to keep them in it, but I mean, I I just don't know you know what what the blueprint is, what Kansas can possibly do to to try to right the ship and get this football program turned around in a more positive direction. I think you have to do something completely different. And I've always, for the past years, I've always been a big believer that a program like KU one shouldn't be as bad as they are. They, they're not never going to, they're not ever going to compete for big 12 titles consistently, but like they should be in bowl games every single year, I think. So how do you do that? Well, you're not going to beat OU, OSU, Texas. You're not going to beat the, the big guys with, 
going head to head in a, in a spread offense. I would go triple option if I'm Kansas. Do something completely different that makes it really, really hard uh, for opponents to prepare for. You're going to sneak out a couple wins that you shouldn't. You're going to get blown out sometimes, but you're already getting blown out anyway. So that's not a huge deal anyway. So um, if I was Kansas, I'd open up the checkbook for Army's head coach, Jeff uh, Munkin. The problem there, guys, I think Army's the better job. I don't think like that's not a, that's not a move up for Jeff. So, um, but that's a, like a, a, an example of a move I would try to go to is you're going to have to do something different. You can't just continue doing what you're doing because well we've seen where that's gotten. Them. Well, and Adam, I'll throw this to you. This, this was something that kind of made me, you know, kind of turn my head and start laughing. I can't remember who the national media guy was that kind of wrote the article. You know, I, I should have looked into that, but he was talking about, you know, the coaching search, putting it together a wish list on who Kansas should go get. And on it, he had, you know, Tony Elliott, the Clemson offensive coordinator. He had that, uh, the Texas A&M defensive coordinator, a couple other, you know, big power five programs. That's completely unrealistic because if I'm the offensive coordinator at at Clemson, there's no way in hell I'm going to Kansas. Like I know that it is a step up in title, but you know that's a that's a demotion taking a job like that. So um, you know they they did just make the announcement a couple hours ago. They did hire uh, Emmett Jones to be the interim head coach. He was the kind of the passing game coordinator uh, in Kansas right now. But I just don't know what the expectations were, Adam. Yeah, I mean, he's the interim, so I don't expect him to be the head coach going into the actual season. I think he's just taking over for the time being because it's going to be a while before they can hire a coach. They have to go and find that athletic director first. That's going to take some time. Uh, so I, I I don't know how I feel about the triple option and hiring a guy like Jeff Monken. Uh, maybe he would be willing to take the job, and so that qualifies him right then and there. Because um, I think he's a guy that probably loves a challenge and loves being able to prove other people wrong. Um, I just, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's really going to make the biggest difference for a program like that, because, you know, once Munkin moves on or retires or whatever, is that sustainable long-term? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I kind of look more at a, at a different guy. Um, and our new friend, Andy Staples actually wrote, wrote an article basically pushing for, um, the high school coach from, from, uh, Arkansas, Kevin Kelly to get the head coaching job. Um, and that's probably not a name that anyone really knows, but he's the guy that never punts and basically always onside kicks it. And he just uses analytics and he has a team full of guys that are almost completely none of them going to go D1, but they go around and they beat really good teams. Uh, they beat Highland Park in Dallas just this past year, um, broke a streak of like 92 straight home wins for Highland Park. So, um, he would be really interesting and just would be a total amount of fun to watch. He'd be a guy that would absolutely take it. So if you're Kansas, what do you have to lose? There's no support around the football program anyway. At least put something out there that people will be interested and want to tune in for. Well, you're already the laughing stock of college football, you know, not just the Big 12, but, you know, college football as a whole. So you've got to try to figure out a way to, you know, if you're going to get your ass kicked, at least try to be entertaining, try to be different than, than what else is going on. Well, I think that the triple option could be something that, might be beneficial to them in the longer in the long run because it is so tough to prepare for. But I think right now, you know, especially this late in the year, if you bring in a guy that is, you know, he was he grew up in that, he loves running the triple option. 
I don't know if you've got the players on campus to do something like that. And that could put the kind of maybe set the program back from a recruiting standpoint because running the triple option, you might have some receivers or some running backs or maybe a couple quarterbacks transfer that, that don't want to be running that system. And that's not what they were brought in to do. So, uh, but again, I completely agree with you guys. They got to do something to, to kind of spice it up, be a little bit different, do something off the wall. And we'll see once they hire a new athletic director, um, what, what kind of the vision is for, for Kansas football. Speaking of athletic director, the last time this job was open about two or three years ago, uh, Kenny Mossman was mentioned as a candidate for this particular athletic director job. He's from Kansas. Uh, you know, obviously he's at a school where there's a lot of, uh, football prominence. He would help probably help in that area. I haven't heard his name mentioned quite a bit for this opening, but if you guys were in those shoes of, of someone like Kenny Mossman or maybe someone else that, uh, you know, was in the running for this, would you take that job? Wouldn't touch it. Not if I'm Kenny. Now, if I am a associate AD, senior AD, AD at a smaller school because of Kansas basketball. Yes. Um, but I'm a senior, senior AD at a place like Oklahoma. I'm not going to KU. I think that's very similar to like being the offensive coordinator at Clemson, going to be the head coach at, at Kansas. I mean, we I saw an article where, you know, Zach Selman's name was mentioned in it. And even though I know that, you know, Kenny does have some ties to it, but with the with the stuff going on with with Les Miles, the athletic the previous athletic director being fired, the the you know the FBI investigation that's going on right now with with Kansas basketball. I don't know if anything will ever come of that, but there's just there's just too big of a dark cloud around that athletic department right now. So uh, being in a position where you know Kenny's you know he's got a really good reputation, he's beloved here at OU. Um, I I just don't see that being a good fit at this moment in time right now. But uh, we'll let uh, me ask you guys a similar question. But what if you're going after a guy in Kenny's position at a true basketball school? That I think that changes like a Wichita changes. State. Uh, let's go bigger. Let's say a, a senior AD at Kentucky, a senior AD at Duke, a senior AD at you know uh, the the prominent basketball schools that know that's another prominent basketball school. I think that does change the conversation. I'm not going to say they would accept it, but I think that that tilts the scales a little bit back into like a probable opportunity. If you're going after a school with that type of individual, with that type of title, who's familiar with a basketball for a school. I think that's a big reason why Kenny wouldn't leave. Yeah. And I think that could be something that is more appealing from somebody that's already coming from a more, you know, uh, a basketball dominant school, a blue, but a blue blood, um, but I, I could see that definitely being more appealing, whether or not they would actually choose to do that. Kansas football, a lot of the other sports that are a part of that athletic department. I mean, I think people just kind of, you know, okay, they're in season right now. Basketball is our bread and butter. That's what we look forward to. That could be something that that senior AD at another school factors into it when making that decision. But um, I, I think, you know, if you don't get somebody from like a Wichita State or somebody from a, you know, a lesser program, I think that the most appealing uh, candidate that you could um, possibly hire on would be somebody else from a, a more traditional blue bud like a Kansas or excuse me, like a conduct a Kentucky, damn a Duke, some somewhere else like that. So, so I look at that and maybe, you know, someone from OU wouldn't go to, to Kansas for that particular role, but for a number of other schools, I would say for sure, they're looking at possibly quadrupling their salaries uh, just by going from a senior AD to an actual athletic director at the university of Kansas. And yes, there's going to be some challenges there, but the athletic director role is a lot more stable 
than the actual head coach position. Whereas a guy like Alex Grinch, he might increase his salary a little bit at Kansas, but he may not last two years there. So there's a lot of other factors going into whether a coach might might take that role versus an athletic director. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's well said, and that's <laughs> I think we've hit on uh, this is uh, we've spent more time on on Kansas than I really thought that we were going to, but I, th- I think that's a really good segue. Uh, talking Kansas basketball, obviously um, they just defeated Oklahoma in the in the Big 12 championship. Me personally, I did not have a chance to watch any of the games, so I kind of want to defer this over to you guys uh, to kind of lead the discussion on this. What were your thoughts on the game, and ultimately, what were your thoughts on the way this basketball team kind of you know ended the season as they uh, gear up for a, a March Madness run in the NCAA tournament? Tale of two halves, and I'm sure Corbin has some stats lined up here that he's just going to absolutely crush my soul with. So go ahead, Corbin. I actually don't have a ton of stats, guys, but I was I was optimistic heading into today. I think the team needed a win under their belt. They got that with Iowa State, even though it was an ugly win. Sometimes you just need one like that just to kind of turn the momentum back around. It's what they had lost four in a row heading into this. Five, four, something like that. I don't remember. Um, and then... <laughs> And the game started Uh, and it was really hard to watch. Uh, That's probably the worst half of OU basketball I've ever witnessed. Um, I'll never, you know, turn off a game, especially, you know, this late in the season, but I was ready to kind of move on with my night and then had on the background and I will give credit where credit's due. You, You get down 23 in the first half, you're down by 20 at halftime. You work your way back up to seven, uh, with about eight minutes to go, you cut it down to three, uh, which is about three minutes to go. I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due there. They fought hard to the end. The bright spots of tonight, um, you feel a little more optimistic about what's going to happen next week. You know, anytime that you play as well as you did, you put up 47 points in the second half. There's optimism there about what can happen in, in the NCAA tournament, but the thing that has plagued this team all year long was shown exactly tonight. You don't know what you're going to get. They look can look so good sometimes and so bad sometimes. But really, my, my keys were was Brady had 19, um, Harkless had 14. Those are the two bright spots. I thought Austin Reeves played really well. But if you look down the stretch in the last five minutes, he went one for seven. I think had a couple turnovers. I get that that is, that is the game plan. It's very obvious that giving Austin the ball in late game situations is, is how this team is either going to win or lose late. Um, he's a very talented player. He played a lot of minutes in the second half. You have to wonder if his legs were there after you know back-to-back game days. Um, I think this team can win in the NCAA tournament, but I don't know which team is going to show up. Yeah, I'll be honest. I went and took a shower at halftime because that first half was so disgusting. I wanted nothing to do with that anymore. And uh, and so they definitely came out in the second half, and credit to them, they, they didn't quit. I don't know what was said in that locker room, but they came out and played incredible in the second half. They probably made you know six more baskets than – anyone could have realistically expected them to actually make. And they just, they kept with it and they, they really just could never get over the hump. And I mean, they dug such a huge hole for themselves in the first half that um, getting a win would have been a miracle at that point. Even though I didn't get a chance to watch the game in its entirety, I was keeping up with it on social media. I did get a chance to see the highlights and 
you know, a couple takeaways that I had from it was, you know, I, I looked and saw OU men's basketball tweeted it out a half. They were down 35 to 15, only scoring 15 points in a 20 minute half of basketball. You're going to lose that game nine times out of 10. That's not a good recipe for success. It, honestly, in a way, it kind of compares to um, the, I guess it was the 2018 uh, college football playoff semifinal that OU kind of found themselves in against Alabama, where, you know, for lack of a better term, they got their ass kicked in the first half. You know, the game was completely put out of reach by Alabama. And then OU, you know, put together a really good second half, outplayed them in the third and fourth quarter and made it respectable. So that's kind of what um, what, what this kind of reminded me of. And Corbin, I thought you hit the nail on the head. The, the thing that's played this team all season long, in my opinion, is the late game execution. What are you going to get whenever, you know, you come out of that last under four TV timeout? What's going to show up? Um, are, are you going to, you know, continue to run the offense, get everybody involved? Or I know that it's, you know, there, there's been a lot of good moments, but is somebody going to play hero ball? And I think that's what Austin Reeves has kind of gotten into a pattern of doing these last four, five, six games. Um, when he's on, he's pretty damn good. But when he's off, it can cost his team dearly. And, you know, you, you mentioned it. Austin took OU's last seven shots uh, of the second half. You talked about how good Brady Manick played. Elijah Harkless was good. Davion Harmon can go get you a bucket. He's played well um, over the last two to three games. So Lon's got to try to figure out a way to continue to keep everybody engaged, keep everybody involved on the offensive end of the floor because, you know, watching those last two, three minutes, it seemed like, you know, oh, you get a rebound on the defensive end, come down, and the the other four guys would stand off to the side. And it, it was, okay, Austin, go make a play. Either try to get to the rim, draw a foul, hit a step back three, and he just wasn't able to do that tonight. So going into the NCAA tournament, they've got to get the late-game late execution figured out if this team's going to try to make a run maybe in the second weekend. If not, if that first-half team shows up next week, they're going to get their ass kicked and get and knocked out in in the first game. So um, we'll we'll see, though. We'll definitely be cheering for them. And uh, it's like you said, Corbin, it's, it's, it's all about rebounding and matchups. So hopefully we can draw a good one uh, in, in the first round of the NCAA tournament. So, guys – this was kind of the bread and butter uh, of the podcast when we were kind of putting the script together. Um, saw it on social media earlier this week. Um, Andy Staples, he does a really good uh, po- college football podcast um, every single week. He had on Ari Wasserman. If, if I'm mispronouncing the name, Ari, I apologize. And the topic that they covered in the Big 12 was over the next five years, rank the jobs from 1 to 10 in the Big 12. And the bulk of the the discussion that I kind of wanted to chat with you guys about was they were on completely different sides of the spectrum as far as who was ranked number one, who was ranked number two. Uh, Andy had OU, not even close. Ari had Texas at the number one spot, not even close. So, guys, before we kind of dive into it, and I, I don't want to rip Ari to shreds, he had four or five takes that, honestly, I, I don't know how somebody that's you know spends his entire time you know covering college football – I would love to talk to him, kind of get his thoughts on where he's coming from on a few of these, um, you know, different takes that he provided for us. But guys, just kind of what were some of your initial thoughts uh, from that Andy Staples episode of the podcast? And we'll we'll dive into some of Ari's specific takes here in just a sec. Well, I I get the perspective that he had, and I I understand too where where you're about to come from here, Tyler. Um, You know, if you're, it just really depends on on what your background is and a guy like Ari, he's a recruiting guy. That's his main focus as a writer for the athletics. So, and he does a good job. He does a great job. I mean, his, his recruiting analysis is spot on, but he's going to look at a program and go, okay, who's getting the best recruits. 
who has the most resources to get those recruits, who's going to be located, you know, close to all those recruits. And that's something Texas wins in, in every single category. Now there's a lot more to a program and a lot more to a coaching uh, job than just those aspects, but that's what he's going to be focused on. Well, Corbin, I'll, I'll throw this, this first one to you. Um, the, the, the first thing that, that Ari kind of said was, you know, quote, Texas is the more talented team and is much better at recruiting than OU. And he kind of highlighted the the recent success that Steve Sarkeesian has had in kind of building uh, this early 2022 class. And, you know, guys, I, I think it's a safe bet. And we can make the argument that Oklahoma will have the more talented and better football team this year. But giving Ari the benefit of the doubt, let's let's take away 2021 and just look back over the last 10 years or so. Um, you know, yeah, that, that he, he's exactly right. Texas has beaten OU on the recruiting trail and has had better rankings for their classes, you know, most of the time. But the number of stars, we all know this, the number of stars next to a kid's name doesn't translate to winning football games on Saturdays in the fall. And while Texas has out-recruited OU the past 20 years, even while Bob Stoops was the, was the coach, Texas was still recruiting at an elite level. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean a damn thing if you can't coach up and develop the recruits once they step foot on campus. And we will see if Steve Sarkeesian and the new staff down in Austin, if they can do what you know Charlie Strong and Tom Herman couldn't do. But right now, when it comes to player development, that's something OU has been able to do a much better job at than Texas. And it's not even close. And you know, we, we talked about Ari highlighting, you know, Texas and Sarkeesian building a dominant 2022 class. Um, boys, according to Rivals right now, I checked it before we came on air, Texas has the number seven ranked recruiting class, OU's number four. Yeah, I, I would have agreed with Ari on every step of the way if the argument is about what should be the better job. Texas should be the better job. And I don't think any of us would argue that. There's, there isn't one, in my opinion. You look at location, you look at donor size, the amount of revenue they come in, the brand of Texas is bigger than OU, and in every way, shape, or form, City Texas of Austin should be the better job. But it's not. And there's nothing over the past decade that says in the next five years that it is the better job. There's just nothing to back that. Everything that he said was kind of on a, on a wish and a dream, and that's fine, but we've been saying that for the past six years, ever since Mac left, that this was the time Texas was going to come back. Charlie Strong was going to do it. Tom Herman was going to do it. I mean, literally, the phrase, Texas is back, happened under Charlie Strong. Like, that, <laughs> that, that happened under his watch. There was so much belief there. So, yeah, but looking back, I went back, you know, the past – Five years, uh, both rivals in twenty four seven. UT had had beat OU in the recruiting rankings three to two. Um, I think you're skimming hairs, you know, if if you're really that close in the recruiting ranking. But yeah, you look at on the field production and what those talented um, players have done, and I've got a lot of stats coming up here. I think I'm point four that I'm pretty excited about, but you just you can't you can't compare the two and what's happening on the field. And and to to Texas's credit. They always play us well, at least recently, yeah, absolutely. regardless of how good they've been. And I, I see Ari's point there, but that's what a rivalry game does. I mean, any time you, you go across the field against someone who you literally have a hatred against, and there's a long, rich, historic rivalry between the two, anything can happen. I don't care if Texas has beaten us in recruiting. They're ranked 60th every year. They're probably going to come up and nip us every now and then. So um, I – I kind of throw that that out the window because that's that's just a rivalry game playing tough. Yeah, 
Go yeah, ahead, Adam. I mean, if you look at Texas, pretty much ever since World War II, OU has been the better program. Uh, even if you start in the you know 1970s, OU is the better program. Even when Mac Brown was in Austin, it was still the discussion of can he beat OU, which he started to a little bit more as you know in the late, latter half of the 2000s. But then he got to a point where he wasn't necessarily fired, but he wasn't able to leave of his own accord. Uh, and we see that with Charlie Strong being fired. Tom Herman was fired. Um, and now there's a, a ton of hope because there's a new guy in there. And so I think you look at that and go, well, the job security is not that great. They really can't um, you know, topple OU in their own conference on a regular basis. Um, they're not winning conference championships. Uh, and if you look at national championships, they, they've won, uh, I think, four all time. And so that's less than OU. Um, so if you're looking at actual on the field, yeah, they're not really um, top dog in their conference. And they haven't been, well, I guess they were in the Southwest Conference, but compared to OU, they, they really haven't been since World War II. But to Corbin's point, you know, he's right. In theory, Texas should be the better job. They just actually aren't. Well, I think you could even make the argument that Texas is their own worst enemy. You know, one of the good things about Oklahoma over the last 20 to 25 years, the the consistent success it you know it's you know it's it's all hands on deck. Everybody's on the same page. Whether it was with Bob Stoops, you know J- Joe Castiglione, David Boren, um, you know n- now we've got the new president. You know Texas with all the bureaucracy and the politics down there in Austin, the donors and the border regions. Everybody wanting to have a say in how that program is run. That's kind of you know what what's se- what's kind of the 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 separating factor uh, between these two programs because they do recruit at a very similar level. They both play their best game whenever they show up at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas every every single year. There is hatred in that rivalry, and that's the way it should be. Uh, but the the second bullet point, this is probably the um, the the one that's got the least amount of you know sprinkles on it. But I just kind of wanted to open this up. Ari talked about how with Steve Sarkeesian at the helm, in theory. Texas could be the next Alabama dynasty. And the the only thing that I want to touch on that is we have never seen in the history of college football what what a program like Alabama has done in the last decade. The amount of success, the conference championships, the national championships that Nick Saban has won during his time uh, at Alabama, we've never seen that happen before in the history of college football. So while I agree that Texas does have the proximity the you know Texas is a huge recruiting hotbed. They've got the money, they've got the resources, they've got the facilities. We've never seen anybody in the history of college football do what Alabama is doing right now. So I think that it's a little bit far fetched. You might be reaching to think that Steve Sarkeesian, who is you know kind of maybe an above average head coach when he's been given the opportunity, how you could expect him to just come in with a new staff and ultimately maybe in the next two three years he's going to have Texas on the same level as Alabama could happen. Is that something that is realistic that you could forecast? I, I don't think so. I don't mind him saying it, but you could say the same thing about Ohio State. You could say the same thing about Florida. You could say the same thing about Oklahoma. You could say the same thing about USC. You could say the same thing about Georgia. They're all in that same realm of like they could. So I don't know. Yeah, I probably take OU out of that conversation, but I don't know what would be different between a Ohio State, a Florida, a USC, a Georgia, and being in that same conversation got just as much money if not close they're all in recruiting hotbeds and they've got huge fan bases huge facilities you could say that about any of those schools well and i think you too well i think you have a better i think you have an even better argument with programs like ohio state and florida because 
they've had much more consistent success over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, they've been in the big games. They've won their conference. They've both won a national championship over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. Yes, Texas had one um, with Vince Young. But, you know, going back over the last 8 to 10 years, it's been a bottom half of the Big 12 type of program uh, on the field. So, um, guys, this this next one here, I think that we can have some fun with this one. And again, we're not we're not, for lack of a better word, we're we're not shitting on Ari again. He's he's really good at what he does. But I think that, you know, you, you, whenever you talk about different things like this, you really have to dive in to, you know, the the the, the breadcrumbs, kind of dive into you know what's co- what's coming with these takes. Ari says, compared to Oklahoma, Texas has lost just two, three, or four more games total in the past four years. I did some research and went back over the past four years to kind of tally up the results for both of these programs. From the, tw- from the 2017 season to the 2020 season, these are the records for OU and Texas. 45-8 and eight for the Sooners, 32-18 and 18 for the Longhorns. Texas has lost 10 more games than OU, and the Longhorns are 4-1 and one, uh, against Oklahoma during that stretch. So, caught up in the moment, misspoke, I, I don't know, but that... I don't know that, that 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 as soon as I heard that I was I was just like what? Tyler, you should ask uh, to speak to Ari's manager about that one because that is an unacceptable mistake. If he wouldn't have said total, I could have been like, okay, at least that's accurate. But if you're if you're talking about every year you're losing two, three, or four more games more than OU, that's not a great argument. Uh, so regardless of how he meant it or if he misspoke on the total versus saying like each year. Mm-hmm. It's not good. None of that's good. Um, and yeah, 10, 10 more losses over, you know, the past four or five, that's, that's a huge difference. And that's not even taking into account like big 12 championships, Heisman trophies, like uh, Texas has, Texas has hasn't been a top three program in this conference in the last four years. Yeah. Some wins count more than others, like big 12 championships. <laughs> they, they played for big 12 championships. I think you have to put them in that, that yeah. one year. True. I mean, they were one, two, um, and they did beat us that year in the Cotton Bowl. But yeah, outside of that year, you know. I will say I think it's easy for people to put Texas up on, you know, a higher pedestal than they actually are because they're one of the biggest brands in the sport. They have, you know, one of the biggest fan bases. And so it's it's easy to say to elevate them above where they actually are, which is why everyone's always going, is Texas back? Is Texas back? Look, they beat you know, some on average, I think they're back. And I think the best analogy that I can think of for that, and um, I don't necessarily think Ari was was arguing this on that particular podcast, um, but a lot of people look and say it's the biggest brand, so therefore they're the potentially the best. But if you look at, uh, for example, AT&T versus Verizon, AT&T is a much bigger brand than Verizon. They have about $40 billion more in revenue each year than Verizon. That doesn't necessarily mean that being the CEO of AT&T is better than being the CEO of Verizon, which, by the way, CEO of AT&T is an OU alum. But, um, you know, there's a lot of other factors. You know, is the marketing department working in sync with the HR department at AT&T? That's a good example because at Texas, there's so many other hands in the cookie jar. There's so much other stuff going on that being the coach there isn't necessarily always going to be the easiest job. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, and I think that's a I think that's an excellent analogy to kind of compare everything. And guys, this this fourth one here, um, Corbin, I'll I'll throw this one to you after after I get done here. Ari said, as of right now, Texas has a better roster 
to compete for a national title, and the only thing that OU has is superior quarterback play. Okay, Texas is gonna ha- is going to definitively have a better player than Oklahoma for sure at one position this year, and that's at the running back position with B. John Robinson. He's a stud. He's probably top two, three running back in the entire country. Completely agree with that. B. John's great. Now, I know Texas is going to have some really good players on the defensive side of the ball. We all know about how good uh, Alfred Collins is. He's got an incredibly bright future. Wish we could have had him in Norman. DeMarvion overshone the kid out of Arp, Texas um, at, the, at the outside linebacker position. He's fantastic. But I still think OU will have the better defensive line collectively in 2021. And I think the linebackers are, are, are probably a wash, especially – if we're just talking about, you know, Texas's group of Overshone, Juwan Mitchell, Ray Thornton versus Nick Benito, Brian Osamoa, and David Aguebu, and we're not even talking about Deshaun White that's been a starter for the last three years. But just looking at the roster from top to bottom, is would you rather have OU's receiving core or Texas's? I think it's probably a pretty safe bet. Look at the H-back room. Look at the quarterback position. I just I, – I don't really know how you could sit there and make the argument that Texas – is is lined up from you know player one to 125 they have a better roster going into 2021 uh than oklahoma does i'm glad you focused on the the defensive side of the ball there because i only focus on the offensive side of the ball i had enough of an argument just to kind of stop there so let's let's look back because my my biggest issue with with this entire argument for texas being one is based on what and the only way you can really answer the question is by looking back over the past couple years so I thought these stats were were crazy because I, I agree with you, Tyler. I think I think running back is a spot where you could make an argument that Texas has been better. At best, that is a head-to-head tough argument to have over the past few years. But let's take a look at O-line. Um, OU had six sacks in 2020, nine sacks in 2019. There's no way you can make an argument there that Texas has had a better O-line. I don't, I don't see that changing next year. Um, and I wouldn't put receiver play. And, and I'm stunned by what I found on some of these stats. So uh, I do think Devin Duvernay, LJ Humphrey, Colin Johnson, all really, really solid players that Texas had over the past few years. Very solid. Let's get into what they did on the field. Um, Texas didn't have a receiver with over 500 receiving yards in 2020 or in 2016. I had to check that multiple times because I didn't actually believe that when I saw it. Um and they didn't have a receiver over 800 yards in 2017. Now, let's compare with what has happened in those years on the OU side. I think last year was an exception. Our, probably our two most talented receivers, neither one of them played um, besides a handful of games last season. Marvin Mims led the team. He had over 600 yards in uh, receiving yards in 2020. Let's take it back a year for uh, previous. CD had over 1,300 yards in 2019. Charleston Rambo. Had over 700 yards in 2019. Let's take it back a year further. Marquise Brown had over 1,300 yards in 2018, and CD had over 1,100 yards that year. Marquise had over 1,000 yards in 2017, and DD had over 1,500 in 2016. So my question again is like, I understand if you want to bring that argument to the table, do it. But but based on what what has happened recently that you feel like Texas is better at these positions because there's nothing there that, that says that that's the case. It's the same thing that's happened with Charlie Strong and Tom Herman. It's there's a new coach, so the the hype train's rolling right now. Adam, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, what you were saying there and where you were going with that was just the stars that are on the team with all the recruiting rankings. And um, you know, I didn't look back through every single year over the last decade, but you could, 
probably, I would say it's a fair guess that Texas has had the better recruiting rankings over the last decade, but have they had better players? Absolutely not. Because, you know, whether it's talent identification, whether it's motivation, player development, probably a combination of all of the above. And now we're seeing a a huge disalignment as far as, um, you know, the eyes of Texas and the players wanting to be at the school in some cases. Um, And that's, a huge mess there. We don't have time to get into all that today, but once they get on campus and are actually on the field in Austin, they're not developing at the same rate as they are at a place like OU. So I think that's just another point that says, Hey, it's easier to develop players at a school like Oklahoma and therefore a better coaching position to have. I'll have to go back and Corbin, maybe you can answer this just because you've kind of, you know, dived into the numbers, but going back over the last eight to 10 years, every time that OU and Texas have taken the field together, has Texas had an advantage at the quarterback or receiver position in the last eight years? Obviously you've got, you've got Spencer this year. Okay. They maybe Sam fourth year quarterback. Okay. I think you could make that argument. Ultimately, you know, as good as Sam played, Spencer won the game in the second half and in overtime. But back up, Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray for a year, Baker for three years, you know, maybe, uh, I guess, who, who was playing quarterback for Texas when Trevor Knight uh, won a game or two? Was it Jalen Hurts or uh, not Jalen Hurts? Tyrone Swoops? Yeah. Let's go past decade real fast. Okay. Um, 2010, Garrett Gilbert. 2011 uh, was, a mix, was a mix between Gilbert, Case McCoy, and David Ash. Same thing in 2012, except Gilbert left. Uh, same thing in 2013. Swoops comes in in 14. Hurd comes in in 15. Bouchelle comes in in 16 and 17. Then you have Ellinger. Tell tell me where there's the edge there. And, and what year was Trevor here? Because that might be the one year where you can make that argument. But 2014. Yeah, 14 was, I think, Adam, you're right. You had Landry before that, and Landry was better than all of those guys. So Well, and... And lo- looking at the receiver position, I mean, L.J. Humphrey was a was a beast. Colin Johnson was good. But when you've got, you know, I, I thought Kerry Murdoch on the U40 podcast, I think he hit the nail on the head. Were they really that good against Oklahoma? Or was it because Mike Stoops was trotting out five foot eight, five foot nine uh, DBs that Texas was just throwing, you know, jump balls to him down the field 15 to 20 times? But, you know, look, looking, we, you know, we can talk until we're blue in the face about the how great OU's been at the receiver position with CD, Hollywood, Shep. Um, you, you know, uh, DD all them, but I, I don't know. I just thought that to, to kind of wrap this point up, it was, I, I just don't understand making a claim. Texas is, is, you know, that they have a, a more complete roster. Um, I just, I just don't understand it. So guys, next point here, going into 2021, Texas is closer to winning a national title than OU. Let me see Texas win the big 12 before we start talking national championship. Texas hasn't won a Texas hasn't won a conference championship in over a decade. And how how could anybody, after watching these two teams at the end of last year, sit there with a straight face and think that Texas, who's going to have a brand new coaching staff, they're going to be breaking in a new offensive and defensive system, a brand new quarterback, couple new faces in the couple new faces on the offensive line, a handful of key, key contributors on defense. How can you sit there? and say that Texas is closer to winning a national title than OU when we all know how good this Oklahoma team has a chance to be uh, once September gets here. I just I just don't understand it. And again, I don't want to I don't want to sit here and just bash on Ari, but when when you're making an argument like this, there, there's got to have you got to have some facts behind 
the, the these statements that you're making, and I just don't I just don't understand it. To me, this is the easiest one to answer. It's because they weren't watching Texas; they're watching Alabama. That's they're watching Steve Sarkeesian and probably the three most talented players on the offensive side of the ball were all on Alabama's team. They're watching that. And yep. so, yeah, that they weren't watching Texas. They're watching what Texas could be, right? And that's what we've been hearing for the past decade is what Texas could be. Well, last I checked, Nick Saban's still in Tuscaloosa, so. That is. I look at this, and I, I think there's certainly some disconnect. We're obviously OU fans, so we're going to be a little bit more homer than some others. But listening to some more national broadcasters and, and podcasts and things like that, um, there's not the sense that, hey, this is a team of destiny at OU. They're they're definitely going to be in that top four. There's a lot of people that are unsure if OU's even going to make the playoffs this upcoming year. So not everybody has bought in on, on this particular team like we have. But even that said, a coach coming in and winning a national championship year one is basically unheard of. I don't think I've I don't think that's ever happened before, at least uh, probably not since 1950. But uh, whereas people could say, yeah, OU, it's plausible they could win a championship in 2021. Now, if Texas comes out and has a good year uh, and, you know, they have some continuity in the team and um, they don't have all the outside distractions, all the donors and different things, and Sark proves that he can develop some players, then I'd say, okay, maybe he gets that second year bump that a lot of coaches do when they win a national championship. But at very minimum, I think you'd have to say at least OU has a one-year head start on on potentially winning a championship over Texas. In a in a perfect world, Texas should ten times out of ten be the be the best job. You've got the resources, you've got the proximity being right there in the heart of Texas. You've got the money, you've got the fan base, you've got the donors. But the it, it just kind of seems to me like you're Corbin. You're exactly right. You're basing this opinion based on the fact of what. What, what a coach did at Alabama with the elite players, with arguably the three best players at their position in college football last year. And coming into a situation in, in Texas, I fully expect Texas to be better, especially on offense in the next two to three years. I think that that process could be sped up. I think they could be really good in 2021 because they have a player like B. John Robinson. We'll wait and see what's, uh, what Sarkeesian does at the quarterback position. But Texas is going to have athletes. There's never a shortage of athletes, especially at the skill position in Austin, Texas. So I think Texas is eventually going to get better. But Lincoln Riley's on a, is, is, he, he, he's playing chess, not checkers, when it comes to uh, offensive game plan. So that, that's going to be a fun one to watch. Can Texas turn it around? If if this team can't do it, and this coaching staff can't do it, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible. So we'll uh, we'll see. So guys, there's there's one last thing here that we've I think we've kind of tied onto it. But since Mac Brown, Texas hasn't had a great head coach, even with all the dysfunction and all the coaching turnover, they have still been pretty comparable to Oklahoma. You guys want to take that one, or we've kind of already covered that uh, a little bit. I mean the disparity in wins and losses, the accomplishments, uh, both individually and from a team perspective, it's not really comparable. Um, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where he was going with that one. In the last four years of Mac Brown paired with the, the, the last six years with Charlie strong, Tom Herman, Texas's record has been 76 and 60 since the 2010 season. OU's 118 and 27 with I think it's seven or eight Big 12 championships in the last 10 years. Texas hasn't won a, a conference championship since 09. So, again, it's back to what you were saying, Corbin. Texas is a better job based on what? 
I think um, it's really easy to say they had bad coaching now. That was not the message. The message was very similar to what we're hearing right now when when both Charlie Strong and Tom Herman were hired. It was the same thing as what we're hearing with Sarkeesian. And to be frank, if we want to look at head coaching records, I thought this was super interesting. Uh, Charlie Strong has a 74 and 53 head coaching record. Tom Herman is 54 and 22, if what I'm seeing is correct. That seems high. And Steve Sarkeesian was 47 and 35. He has the worst head coaching record of all of them. I just, I, there's, there's, there is something about the Bama machine that is going to make anybody successful. That's why washed up head coaches, not all of them, but some of them go there and all of a sudden they're in prime position for another job. But sometimes you just have to kind of face the facts of, of sometimes things are what they seem. And Steve Sarkeesian has the worst head coaching record of any of the two guys before him. What makes us think that he's going to turn Texas around? I don't know. We've talked about the Nick Saban coaching tree in a previous podcast, talking about who's been the who has gone on to become the most successful head coach, and what what were we talking about? Lane Kiffin and Kirby. 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 The, those are the two. So, I mean, there's a couple guys, but if we're looking, you know, at, at the entire body of water, there really hasn't been a coach that has you know won a national championship or has you know been coaching under Nick Saban and then has gone on to transform a program into a consistent powerhouse across college football. Well, maybe not just at college football, but at least being the number one program in your conference. So, uh, but but again, that one one of the best parts uh, about the off season is you know even though there's not a whole lot of content, there's not a whole lot of stuff going on on the field, we do get a lot of good contact because we're able to listen to the national guys, the guys that do this for a living, like Andy, like Ari, um, that that you know put out some really good stuff each and every week, and it allows us to be able to you know kind of react to it and talk about it and you know see how this kind of you know. Uh, factors in to you know as an OU fan what, what the perspective is on this so well guys we'll finish it out here they talked about ranking the entire conference the the Big 12 job rankings and I wanted to kind of do this we obviously it's OU Texas number one but I'm curious to see what you guys are going to do with numbers three through nine we don't even have to explain who 10 is we've already mentioned them earlier in this podcast but uh, Adam who did you have number three as being the third best job behind OU in Texas, if you were going to take that job uh, and the outlook on that over the next five to 10 years, what's number three, Adam? Yeah, I went with TCU and my whole thinking with all my rankings is just who has the best chance to win a national championship. And I don't realistically think anyone below OU in Texas can actually do it in the current format of the playoff and the way the conference is, is lined up with 10 teams, but TCU has proven they can, uh, win a Big 12 championship or at least share one and make it to a conference championship game. Their proximity talent is, is really great. Uh, and so I, I put them number three. I had them at three as well. My, my three through five, honestly, could probably be interchangeable. Um, but I had them at three. One, proximity. I agree with you, Adam. And two, private school money. There's something <laughs> to be said for that. I'm in, I'm in complete agreement with you. TCU strictly based on location, proximity to recruits, facilities, and that and that private school money. So number four, I had Baylor, and again, these are, I think that three through six, maybe seven, maybe are interchangeable. But again, where Baylor is located at, their proximity, especially to Houston, being right there in the middle of Texas, they've got the private school money. Um, Dave Aranda, we, we you know we kind of see what he's been doing. Um, we all know um, what what uh, the the coaching has been since Art Briles left. Um, they've kind of got that program turned around. So I think Baylor, based specifically on location, money resources 
being right there in a hotbed of Texas, I think I would put Baylor ahead of somebody like Oklahoma State right now. I've got Oklahoma State because if you're looking at the next five years, Mike Gundy's still going to be there. And anytime he's going to be there, I'll take I the think, under. Ooh, I, based based on what? <laughs> I mean, there's there's nothing there to say he's going to leave or they're going to fire him. I, I think that the the fan support and maybe which I mean they're they're going to have a new athletic director going into next year, but I think that the fan support is kind of wavering with Mike Gundy. But the the reason why I had Oklahoma State ranked behind Baylor at five, OSU, you've got somewhat of a passionate fan base that. I mean, it, it, it's kind of hard to say, but th- that fan base, they're okay with being above average every single year. Expectations are never going to be high, you know, l- like you see at Oklahoma or Texas. Just look at Mike Gundy winning eight or nine games every year, getting beat by OU, and even though the support is starving, starting to waver a little bit, he's beloved in, in Stillwater. So I, I think that based on location alone, they're not going to get the top players every single year, with the abs- exception of Kendall Daniels, I guess. But I, I think that, Oklahoma State, if I'm looking five years ahead, I don't think that's as appealing of a job as a TCU or a Baylor. I put OSU at four as well for a lot of the same reasons Corbin just mentioned, but I also like the way that they're going to be tied to OU in any type of future realignment uh, discussion, whereas Baylor may be left out on an island. So I think long-term, the OSU job is going to be a little bit better, being a state school a little bit bigger. Um, they have a slightly more success in their past history than Baylor has. Uh, Mike Gundy's really elevated that program, and because he's been there so long and could potentially be there for, for longer, I think that just more and more solidifies them as, as a top job, whereas Baylor really has been more of a blip on the radar with Art Bryles and a little bit of Matt Rule. So we'll see if they can keep that going. If you remove Mike Gundy from Oklahoma State, do you still feel as good about the direction of that program over the next decade? as you do about where Baylor's headed right now? Yes, and here's the one reason why, because I think Gundy sucks at recruiting, and I think Oklahoma State should be recruiting a lot better than they currently are. You point. get a young head coach in there with those type of facilities, which I still think are top four in the conference, maybe higher. Their facilities are great. So you get a head coach that's actually hungry and that's ready to get on the recruiting trail that can go feast off of those lower tier one players in Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas. Yeah, I think they could be better. Um, but – Let's not get carried away. I don't think Gundy's going anywhere any, anytime soon. Adam, what do you have next? Uh, for my, I guess, number five, kind of covered that. That's Baylor for me. Uh, we've kind of covered that one. So you want me to go down to six? Yeah, what do you got for six? Six, I've got Texas Tech. Um, there's honestly not a, really a ton to love about Texas Tech other than the fact that they're, they're in Texas. And so that means you're going to get some recruits because there's so many players in that state. So... Um, that's really the only reason I have them here at six. I've got Iowa State at five. Um, I think with what Matt Campbell has done, and he just signed a new contract, doesn't mean he can't leave. That always happens in coaching. But there, there's a there's a greater opportunity for someone to ride Matt Campbell's coattails after he leaves Iowa State, because I do think over the next two to three years, you're going to see the talent increase in that program because of the success on the field they've been having recently. So I've got Iowa State at five. I have Baylor at six. The foundation has been laid at, at Iowa State with what Matt Campbell's done. So I think if you remove Matt Campbell, the blueprint is there as far as how to continue it. Now, obviously, Iowa State is as good as they are, and they're getting the type of players that they are because players want to go play for Matt Campbell. They see what he's done building that program. Iowa State, I have them at six, passionate fan base. 
you all, you guys know I love Matt Campbell, um, the, the way that he's recruited, being able to develop players. Essentially, at Iowa State, you're not going to get the four and five stars every year like OU and Texas are. You're going to get the two and three stars. But as good of a coach as he is and a good as, as good of a staff as he's surrounded himself with, he's getting those two and three stars to play like four and five stars. So recruiting extremely well in the Midwest. I think Iowa State is headed in a good direction. I think that location is not ideal from a proximity you, you disagree i mean you're you, you can't I, recruit I you, you can't recruit the state of texas i mean you're more in the midwest where you're gonna yeah. be you can i thought this argument and they, they brought up on the pod was super intriguing because i had never thought about it this way before one you're you're in big 10 country and you're you're not going to go toe-to-toe with ohio state and michigan and penn state you're not but you can you can feast in that area off of really really good talent um and you get to make the argument to all the Southern kids, especially in Texas, three to four times a year, at least twice a year, you're going to be playing in your home state. And so now you're getting two recruiting hotbeds from two different power conferences that you get to play at home and stay at home. And you can make you can at least make the pitch to Texas kids that, hey, we're going to be coming back and playing in your way. And when we get to the Big 12 championship, we're playing in your state too. And they just did that last year. I think that's not going to resonate with every Texas kid but it can resonate with some. And I think that's all they need is just some. Yeah, I will say Iowa State is located in closer proximity to probably a higher population base. They're within five hours of Chicago, Kansas City, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Omaha. Now, those aren't necessarily huge football talent-rich areas like the way Texas is. So they do have some uh, more potential there. And I do think as... You know, Kirk Ferentz fades off into retirement, and there's been some cracks in the Hawkeye program recently. So I think there is some room for Iowa State to continue to grow as they become more of a prominent program within that particular state. Whereas we've seen Iowa with Ferentz and even before that with Hayden Fry um, really be a really solid, uh, you know, at least every four years Big Ten championship type of team. And so I think that Iowa State can become that as Iowa uh, decreases over time. Yeah, that's an argument that I I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. So I I think you guys make a really good point on that. Um, Number seven for me, I've got Kansas State in this slot. K-State's never going to be a consistent front runner in this conference, but they're a blue-collar football program that's always going to play you tough. Just ask Oklahoma. Uh, the, the last two years especially. And even if they get the uh, – well, I guess let me back up here. If uh, – with that blue-collar mentality, that work ethic, that physical toughness that, um, that that is instilled in the guys up there in Manhattan, if if Kansas State ever gets the right guy at quarterback, then they could have a special team maybe once every three to four years. Just look at what they've done with guys like Colin Klein in the past. So I think that Kansas State is in a good position geographically. Um from a facility standpoint, their stadium's fantastic. Adam, we were up there a couple of years ago, had a good time. Aggieville was awesome, but I've still got them all the way down in the seven spot behind all those other teams. I didn't have K State that high. Um, I had uh, I had Iowa State at eight, and then I had K State at nine, which kind of hurts because you know I look at K State, and out of all the teams on the list, it, it was about twenty years ago that they were on the cusp of playing for a national championship, and a lot has changed since then. Um, you know, with the conference and with the playoffs and things like that. But it is so tough to recruit guys there. And I think they have a great coach right there in Chris Kleiman. But I just don't know that the ceiling is that high. Um, you know, 
I, I had a great time in Manhattan, but knowing that recruits are, are going to fly into Kansas City or maybe even Manhattan, but the experience of flying into such a, a small, isolated area, that's tough. Um, that's tough to recruit those types of guys too. So um, I just I just don't know that even with the great fan base they have and the support, there's just not nearly as much money and not nearly as many recruits as you need to, to be truly successful there. Well, I think that Chris Kleiman is very similar to Matt Campbell from a standpoint where he's a really good evaluator of high school kids. And the fact that he is able to coach kids up and get them playing, honestly, at a higher level than they probably thought they could prior to stepping on campus. So I think that he is building a good program. And I, like I said, I, I, I think I would rather coach at Kansas State prior to these last two or three that I've got on my list simply because of the fact that the the blueprint is there. What Bill Snyder did, what Chris Kleiman's doing, I think that you have a chance to have some pretty consistent success winning seven, eight games a year, maybe having a special season if you get the right quarterback and a senior-driven team. Yeah, so not exactly sure what number we're on anymore, but I have, I've got West Virginia at seven, a very similar argument to what I made for Iowa State proximity-wise, you can feast off of that Northeast area. You can. They haven't, but you can. Um, and I've, you know, I think the, I don't know, as far as campus life, it, it, I feel I've been to them both. I think that's very similar to K-State. Um, very similar by very similar type of town environment. Um, but yeah, I've got, got West Virginia, seven, got Texas Tech at eight, Kansas State at nine and KU at 10. And guys, for me, the two Kansas schools at the bottom, you may have a game plan at Kansas State as far as, you know, what Coach Snyder did and, and recruiting JUCOs and, and having that blueprint. But that's never going to be, put you at an elite level. I don't think so. Not anymore. Snyder did it in his prime, but that's not, I don't think that's the case anymore. And it's always going to be hard recruiting kids to Kansas because as bad as, I won't say Oklahoma recruiting is bad in state. I think it's gotten better but it's not a hotbed of talent. And if Oklahoma is not a hotbed of talent, what does that make Kansas? Because there's not a whole lot happening there as far as elite prospects. So I've, I've just out of sheer proximity and the ability to recruit, I've got the two Kansas schools. I had West Virginia seventh as well. And they're in a tough spot in this conference, geographically isolated. So they're recruiting different players, but they do have a tradition of success and winning um, for several, several decades not at a champ, you know, national championship level, but they pretty much ran the big East when they were in that conference. And so far in the big 12, I'm still waiting for them to have, uh, and part of that is OU standing in the way they have yet to be OU at any point in the big 12, but, um, I'm waiting for them to have that really big breakout year. And, and maybe that was what they had with Will Greer there in 2018, but, um, they've just been mostly slightly better than average. Um, but I do like that they they own that state. Um, they have a, a great fan base, great uh, you know uh, tradition there. I just don't know what if they can do much more than what they're already doing. I had Texas Tech at eight. I had West Virginia at nine. Um, I'm definitely in the minority on this one. West Virginia being at nine, like you said, Adam, they are geographically isolated. If you if you look at the map that. Um, that you guys put together um, a few weeks ago when looking at the location of all these different schools that are in the Big 12. Looking at the map, you would ask yourself, how in the hell is West Virginia a part of this conference? But, you know, th that is kind of a recruiting hotbed up there at the Northeast. OU's obviously done done pretty good 
um, over the last few years. But when you're up there, you're still going to be competing with schools in the in the ACC. You're still going to be competing against you know the Blue Bloods like Ohio State. They can go anywhere they want. Alabama's, Georgia's, OU's, Texas. They can go anywhere they want. So I, I guess the biggest reason why. I would th- that would be the ninth selection for me as far as a job I would want to take is specifically because they are geographically isolated from the rest of the conference. And I just I don't know. I'm, I'm in the minority here, but I think that West Virginia, um, that's the ninth best job in the Big 12, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you because I think, like I said, almost anything between three and five, you can make an argument, switch all those around. I think anything six through nine you could make an argument to swing those around. So. Where, Adam, you're going to, you're going to roll your, you're going to roll your eyes. Where would, uh, if you threw Arizona and Arizona state into this, where does, where do those jobs stack up by comparison? Obviously better than both Kansas, Kansas state schools. I think you guys are going to say, but uh, does either one of those maybe crack the top five or six? For me, I'd say Arizona ranks right between K state and KU. Um, just because, Arizona traditionally has not been able to recruit well. They have no tradition of winning, whereas at least K-State has that, and they have a consistent, great fan base there behind them, supporting them. Uh, Arizona State, I would probably slide in somewhere between five and six, which for me is Baylor and Texas Tech. They have a decent recruiting uh, base, but not much tradition of of winning and not a whole lot going on um, in their past. So... I don't know. Arizona State should be a lot better than they are. They're kind of like a like a poor man's version of Texas in some ways, where they have a lot of resources there and they're just not doing a ton with them. Corbin, I would put Arizona State probably around the four to five or six range for the exact same reason why you mentioned Iowa State, because of the fact that Arizona State, like Herm Edwards, obviously right now, you can come into Texas and preach to these high school recruits the fact that we are going to be coming back two to three times every single year playing in your state you know i i talk i, I talked about it in the previous podcast you know being an, an avid golfer loving the environment out there you're you're going to convince a lot of kids to come out there sell them on the on how beautiful how how awesome it would be to live in arizona um where it's you know it's it's warm you know 365 days out of the year so i think from a Whereas I was arguing against West Virginia for being geographically isolated, I think that Arizona State's location could help them in terms of recruiting when it comes to, to joining the Big 12 Conference. Yeah, and you can you can pick off West Coast too, right? Uh, for sure. Because you're technically so. in, you're in Pac-12 country. Yep. I would put um, I put Arizona State right now. I think they have the, the capacity to get up into that range you were talking about, Tyler. Right now, I'd probably put them – I think them and Baylor, I, I would have a really hard time kind of picking between the two. Um, but I would probably, with the current state of the program, I'd probably have, yeah, it has to be behind Kansas State. I mean, it has to. But it, I, th- I, think it's, I still think it's better than Kansas, but so I'd probably have them, a, you know, second to second to worst job. And it shouldn't be. That's the most annoying part about it is that should not be that bad of a job. And neither should Kansas, but that's kind of the state of the program. And I don't see that changing over the next five years, which is what this whole thing was about. So you guys both agree that putting both of those two teams in the Big 12, that automatically puts them at the towards the very bottom of the conference in terms of, I guess, appealing job as a coach. But that also kind of makes the argument that you were talking about, Adam, whereas there really is very little appeal factor in both of those programs. 
as far as wanting them to join the Big 12 Conference. Exactly. And uh, I think it's a topic maybe we'll explore a little bit further in a, in a different podcast. But um, I have some some strong opinions I'll, I'll still lay out uh, in the future <laughs> on that topic. Cool. I don't think a, a mid-Big 12 job would be bad, though. And that's where we all seem to kind of have Arizona State. Um, you know, we wouldn't say a Baylor job is bad or an ISU job is bad. Or I don't think a West Virginia job is bad. And I'd have them kind of in that same that same wheelhouse. So, but a lot of that's a testament to what Coach Herman's doing out there over the past couple of years, and where I think he's taking that program. All right. Well, again, appreciate you guys for listening. Uh, of course, you can always catch all of our stuff on all the major platforms for podcasts. Go online. Um, you know, give us a five star like, give us a review, subscribe to the podcast, uh, send us messages if there's anybody that you guys want to see us have on the podcast. Send in your questions. Love to talk about them. We've got spring football coming up here in just two short weeks. There's going to be a lot of good stuff coming your way, a lot of good content that we're going to kind of provide for you guys. So, uh, But, again, Tyler Burton, Adam Jacquez, Corbin Polson, thank you guys again for joining us for another episode of the Mainline Podcast.